Hello, my relatives. Welcome to season one of Reclaiming the Child Welfare Narrative with the Capacity Building Center for Tribes. We recognize the need for change in our child welfare systems, and our desire is to examine how these systems do or don't align with our tribal values. We hope to create conversations that honor our interconnectedness and reclaim a child welfare narrative that tells our story. So welcome everyone to our first episode of Reclaiming the Child Welfare Narrative. We are so excited to bring this new journey of delivering podcasts. My English name is Jackie Koshi. I come from the Fish Clan and enrolled in the Turtle Mountain Band in North Dakota and happy to be here. Today, we wanna look back to understand where we are now, to talk about the history of removal of native children and dive a little deeper into colonization and just how the current child welfare structure was developed. The discussion will include understanding the root causes of continued disproportionality of Native children in the systems across the United States. Our guest speakers will talk about how tribal child welfare programs can reclaim their systems to reflect their Indigenous worldviews and emphasize responsibilities to our children. So let's get started. Our first guests are Lauren Von Schilkard. She's Pueblo from UCLA and Brett Shelton, who's Oglala with the Native American Rights Fund. They came to our attention, I just wanna mention, through an article they wrote in the Columbia Journal of Race and Law. And we found that art article to be fascinating. And it's called Using Peacemaker Peacemaking Circles to Indigenize Tribal Child Welfare. So go ahead, Lauren, if you want to tell us who you are and where you come from. And then, Brett, if you can introduce yourself after Lauren, that would be wonderful. Thank you, Jackie. Um, as you note, I'm Pueblo. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of the um, Pueblo de Cochiti. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and then I came out to um, Los Angeles for law school at UCLA. I had the privilege of working at the Tribal Law and Policy Institute, where I got to engage with um, tribal justice systems in a variety of contexts. And I then returned to UCLA to serve now as the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians Director of the Tribal Legal Development Clinic with the law school. Brett. Thanks, Lauren. I'm Brett Lee Shelton. I'm a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. Our home reservation is the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in southwestern South Dakota. And I work uh, for the last uh, almost nine years now as a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. And my responsibilities there generally have to do with cultural protections and cultural revitalization work. Um, not so much litigation as more like in the lines of nation building. So um, I work on the Indigenous Peacemaking Initiative. I've done some work in the boarding school healing arena, um, quite a bit of policy work around sacred places protection, and then other odds and ends kind of related to all of that as they come up. I'm really glad to be here, too. This is an exciting series that you're kicking off, Jackie. I am so thrilled to have you guys. I am super grateful to start off with you guys doing this. And again, so one of the things that I found so interesting in that article that I mentioned was the thread you weave um, from the history of removal 
in the harmful policies and colonization to the impact it has had on today's child welfare system. So I'm wondering, Brett, if we couldn't start with you uh, and just talking a little bit more about this history uh, as it pertains to child welfare and its impact. Sure, and, and so I think to, to understand the historical roots of the child welfare system as applied in Indian country, we really have to take a step back in time and look at the what's called commonly the Indian boarding schools. At the time, they were usually called industrial schools um, because they were really designed to educate our ancestors to, uh, to serve in trades more than, more than any sort of a, I don't know, kind of a posh residential educational system that, that you might imagine in modern times. Um, the goal there, as is often heard, was to kill the Indian inside the person in order to save the man or the human inside of that person. Um, there was a, you know, just a, a clear understanding by uh, United States policymakers that what they needed to do in order to deal with their purported Indian problem was assimilate the natives. And um, having struggled to do that since colonial times, there's documentation of Indian education funding being sent to the Virginia colony even to educate local natives into the, you know, quote, modern Western ways. Um, but all through that time, as, as it got more and more intense, it became realized that what they really wanted to do where they might be most effective is that they would take the children and educate them in the American way, in the Western way, which included Christianity as well, generally. Um, <clears throat> that way they, they get them early on before they've actually learned to integrate within their culture and before they've learned to think in their language as much as possible, too. So hard-scale efforts to basically root them out of that system and root them into the system. So we ended up having kids go a long ways away, away from home, so they couldn't even return home on the weekends eventually. But that's the, you know, that's the premise, is basically saving Native children from Native families. <laughs> and, and, th and that's where we take off, and we see that car carry forward into history. I mean, once the boarding schools started to wane, um, with activism in the civil rights era, with repeated findings from federal uh, studies, including the Kennedy Report in 1969, and, and before that, the Miriam Report in 1920-ish, um, that the, the boarding schools were failing. Um, then what happened is they started to wane uh, due to tribal activism as well. Um, what started to pop up was an adoption project where the, the children were still being saved from Native families by a whole-scale adoption out of those families and into other families. Lauren, you're all over this, too, as a professor, too. So if you have anything to add, please chime in. Well, I think it's important to note that while the boarding school is happening and we have all of this explicit federal Indian policy geared towards assimilating Native children, we have sort of the opposite happening on the child welfare side. I think for a long time, certainly stemming from uh, Europe and then uh, influencing American child welfare is the idea that family matters are private, that um, even things like child abuse are notoriously um, under-reported, uh, they are pushed aside and, and really relegated to a private family matter. And so there's very little intervention in child welfare. And to the extent there is, such as like a custody dispute, children are provided very few rights and it's generally under the guise of a property interest that the parents have over their children, primarily centered on the father, but eventually to the mother as well, but that the 
children's in interests to the extent they're acknowledged are, at all are as property interests impacted by the parents. Now that changes. And I think it's, it's we now understand that it's heavily influenced by this history of boarding schools that roots not child matters as private interests that should be relegated just to the parents, but rather intervention, intervention is necessary to save the children. And, and so we see that thread suddenly become injected into child welfare. And it should be celebrated, right, that child abuse is finally acknowledged, but the response is that we don't just have a moral obligation to root out child abuse. We need to save all the children. And in the boarding school, you know, they were very intentional about their motives. It wasn't to just assimilate, you know, to eradicate native culture. It was to infuse native children with an American culture and an explicit attempt to Christianize, but also to um, insert an appreciation for individuality um, at the expense, right, of a communal identity to infuse a sense of American patriotism or citizenship, um, to infuse a sense of, of property ownership and the, the American dream of accumulating wealth and that this is you know, uh, an individual trait that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, all of these things, I think, become descendants of the modern child welfare system where we might not be focused specifically on, on Native families exclusively, but we are informed by the idea that we need to save children, not just from uh, physical abuse, but from some of these psychological abuses where families are raising their children with values that we deem um, inferior or un-American. And so the best thing that we can do is remove that child and put them in an environment where they can be exposed to values that we that we think are superior. Excellent, excellent. I, and I can't help but think about the varying worldviews, right, that you just, you talk about. And so, Brett, I know I've heard you elaborate this on this a little bit more. Could you could you talk a little bit about that varying worldview? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, <clears throat> I worked my way into this to looking at the legal systems. And so that's kind of a nice place to start in the Euro Anglo American legal system where, where these child welfare decisions are rooted or are, are made. Um, we usually talk a lot about rights. And, you know, somebody has a right to this, right to that. There's parental rights. We talk about terminating those if necessary and so on. Um, well, if you look at rights, I think they're generally granted by a sovereign of some sort. In the United States, we have rights granted by the federal government in some way or another, and states grant rights. And <clears throat> I guess even in the foundational documents of the United States, there are certain rights that are inalienable, meaning that the, the drafters thought that they come from God or nature. Right. And so always a higher source gives the rights and those of us below that source seek to have those rights enforced um, if we feel like somebody else is infringing on it, especially somebody equal to or less than our level in the hierarchy. But you see, there's a hierarch hierarchical system inherent in this, too. And and um, instead of rights 
on an indigenous side, I, I don't think rights are a very common concept, and I kind of owe that to learning from elders as I worked on a family code at home as well, where we had to deal with the different issues. And, and what we end up with, I think, if we look at a corresponding concept, you know, what might be the replacement in an indigenous worldview or a pan-Indian sort of a view, I think we come up with relationships, respect, responsibility and reciprocity are key. So we have four R's instead of the one R rights. I think that those taken together provide a pretty good framework. Got to credit uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer for, for being the, the source of that for me at least, and I don't know where it's oriented. I've heard a lot of people talk about three or four R's. It seems pretty pretty telling. Um, what you end up with in the on the native side of that is you get a worldview that's very nurturing and egalitarian. We have responsibilities towards each other and all other beings. We treat them with respect. It's all about discovering what our relationship is with them and, and what we want from that relationship and forming our, our obligations and practice. And it's about reciprocity too. We give and take. That's just much different than somebody giving us rights and us seeking to have them enforced against another. On the on the Western side, kind of kind of stacked up against the nurturing and egalitarian and interdependent nature of, of you know the view of the world. On the Western side, we have a more economic. Um, it's all about property. Uh, Lauren mentioned how how children are. The history of treating children is rooted in treating them as property within the system, and it's clearly a hierarchical system. And we end up valuing individuation or individuals as as kind of an utmost uh, sort of a, a value. And so it's a it's a stark contrast. I think it's almost 180 degrees difference a lot of times. I appreciate that because one of the things that I have often seen is you know recognizing these harmful policies and the impact that it has on our programs today, you know, I, I see a lot of tribes um, looking at federal and state funding um, to do their work. And it can at times, you know, be tied to a, a particular way of doing the practice work, ways that may not work for our indigenous families in the worldview in which you just described. So could either one of you talk a little bit about this? I know, Lauren, you have, I've seen some of the things you've written about when it comes to that self-governance and it talks you talk a little bit about the boxes that are checked could you elaborate on that i can i feel compelled to to go back a little bit into the history still um brett you note that you know our child welfare system is still rooted in this like property thing and, and it's it's so hard to like you can't overstate that if i look at the child welfare system as it exists all right, we've got um, this, this adversarial system, right? We litigate child welfare just like we litigate any other issue. We have a petitioner and we have a respondent and they are at odds and really whoever plays the game best wins just like in any other legal um, situation. But we also have this child welfare service that is tasked with intervening when they deem necessary which I think is good and I think can be envisioned in a way that, that Brett describes rooted in relation and reciprocity and respect. But I think the temptation and the bureaucratic nature of it is it is uh, pulled by the gravitational strain into the adversarial framework and that they are, um, are compelled to make petitions and defend that and are greatly informed by this child-saving drive 
that if we can prevent any perceived abuse, we um, it's worth it, right? Regardless of the cost of removal. Now, in the boarding school era, I think people were very explicit about their worldviews, right? There was an explicit acknowledgement that this is the Anglo worldview, that's the indigenous world review. We reject the indigenous world review and we want them to absorb the Anglo worldview. I think one of the dangers, just one of the dangers of the child welfare system now is that we pretend like the worldview that informs the child welfare system is neutral, that it's default, that this is just a system designed to provide a even playing field for the people at play with the child's best interests at the heart. And that's false, right? This is rooted in a particular history that views children as individual um, uh, property assets of their parents. And when the parents lose the privilege of being the decision maker over this parent, well, then we're gonna pop up that child as an individual and put them in another context where they'll thrive with no consideration for their familial context. And so that informs now how child welfare systems are funded. Um, the federal government provides extensive funding to all child welfare systems in this country, both Indian and non-Indian. It's primarily through the Department of Health and Human Services, which includes the Children's Bureau, which facilitates extensive funding, primarily in a very like bu bureaucratic, the Social Security uh, statute that includes, quote, Title IV-B and Title IV-E that provides extensive funding. There's a lot of concern to ensure that child welfare systems are implementing the best practice, right? Which in and of itself presumes a linear framework where there are good practices and bad practices. And the closer you get to good, the more legitimate that we're going to see you. Of course, our framing of legitimate is rooted in this particular history. Now, so all child welfare systems are compelled to go through these, these um, extensive preprint requirements for accessing funding. And it's a lot. I feel bad even for like the big state systems that have to um, appease the federal government that they're complying with all of these things. One of the many deficiencies is that this funding mechanism was designed for states. It was designed for huge bureaucracies to facilitate that. And then like we see with many funding um, bills, it's like, oh yeah, tribes, uh, like just make them do the same thing. It is hilariously poor fit for making tribes prove that they have the equivalent bureaucracy of the state of California. That's ridiculous. Um, and, but what's more upsetting, even if those bureaucratical challenges aren't there, is that tribes, in order to operate their own tribal child welfare system, have to prove that they have a legitimate system as measured by this preprint that includes values like child or individuals that will be better served by removal into another home. And that's bizarre because that's in conflict with indigenous worldviews. I would argue that's in conflict with good child welfare practices. Um, but it's also in complete conflict with the Indian Child Welfare Act. The federal government has acknowledged the harms that the child welfare system has inflicted upon indigenous families. And yet that is treated as a, a separate issue. 
ICWA and the, the spirit of ICWA and the values that it upholds is not reflected in these funding streams. And so tribes are included in ICWA as a presumptive intervener to have cases transferred to the tribal courts. But once those cases are transferred, tribes are just mirroring, or they're compelled to mirror the same systems that states are implementing. And so it really begs the question, you know, to what end? To what, why, are we, why are we bothering here when we're perpetuating the same thing, the same motivations that informed the boarding school era? I didn't even talk about self-governance, sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I appreciate that. And I would love for you to reflect more on that. And I think for some of the listeners, I, I want to say most understand what the Indian Child Welfare Act is, but, you know, I can't, we, we cannot not mention that. So if you want to just say a little bit more about that before you go into some of the self-governance. Sure. So, um, you know, from the, from the boarding school era, um, there was a recognition that that failed. Um, for the reasons that it failed, I think people have varying degrees, including just a failed bureaucracy. But I think the idea that indigenous children, by remaining in tribal communities, were being harmed, disadvantaged, prevented from joining the American polity and all of the promise that that includes, was a, an idea that perpetuated beyond boarding schools. We have a child welfare system that is developing, you know, within all of these states and was being applied to tribal communities um, outside of the state's jurisdiction, arguably. Um, and to the extent people could start to piece together data, it reinforced an anecdotal sense that they are taking all of our kids. Um, you had communities where up to one third, up to one half, half, of all the children were being removed by child welfare and critically were being placed in homes outside of the tribal community. They weren't just being taken away from their parents or from their extended family or from even their clan, but from the entire community. It be quickly became apparent that, you know, these are not just individual harms to individual families, they're gutting the tribe. Um, the, then a lot of work and a lot of advocacy and a lot of grassroots pulled together to really help paint this picture and included very powerful congressional testimony. Congress notably responded in 1978 with the Indian Child Welfare Act. This is a monumental piece of legislation, though its provisions I don't think are that striking. Um, it includes a number of different procedural um, requirements on state courts for how they are supposed to process child welfare cases when it's being applied against an Indian child. There's definitions for an Indian child. Um, some notable provisions in my mind, um, although I think lots of people have different ideas about what's the best thing about ICWA, but it includes that um, we are going to slow the process down and really prioritize reunification to the extent where other families might be entitled to reasonable efforts for uh, services towards reunification. Indian families are entitled to active efforts, right? And so just the, the disparate terminology there implies Indian families, like we really need to get at this and see if we can prioritize reunification. To the extent reunification isn't possible and we need to place the child elsewhere, we're not just gonna place them anywhere, AKA outside of the tribal community. We're gonna have preferences. 
is there a family member that can take this child? And until we exhaust all of those family members, um, we won't, you know, we won't stop looking. And if we can't find a family member, is there a community member that can take this child? And if no one in the community is able, is there another Indian? Because it's not just about removing this child from their community, it's about removing the child from their culture. And Congress, Congress in the 70s, recognized the value of keeping children connected to their culture. The tribe also has standing, which is really unique and an excellent um, recognition of the role of a tribe as a sovereign in these proceedings, um, which is another like favorite part of ICWA. All of these value statements that are in contrast to how the child welfare system operates. You know, some people are presently arguing that ICWA is unconstitutional and a, a inappropriate uh, intervention into state proceedings and how states should be able to dictate their child welfare system. Others critique ICWA that it only applies to Indian children, but rather that all children should have an opportunity to stay connected to their family, to their community, to their culture, and that their family should get active efforts to try and preserve that. And so ICWA is um, generally celebrated as, a, as what actual good child welfare looks like. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well said. And I just want to go back to, you know, again, you know, ICWA was designed uh, for the state systems uh, to, to comply with and recognizing the non-compliance measures that were built into this federal law and what states now are doing, and as well as tribes, to try to look at that monitoring and compliance. Uh, so, and again, kind of going back to that self-governance and the ability to do so, the ability to to show up and hold systems accountable, to be able to take what they need as, as tribes. Um, to, you know, it, it, for those who are, um, I wanna preface this because I recognize that when we talk about Indian country, we talk about tribes, you know, we have such a, a, a tribes who are self-governing in all different ways and, and recognizing that you know, the size, you know, the rancherias, the larger systems, the state, you know, uh, relationships and so forth. So, you know, I know that our, our, our Indian country out there um, has such a, a, a wide range of looking at that self-governance. Um, but, you know, we're, when we do give the money to the tribes, you know, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, you see that being implemented in their own communities? I'll jump in. And I think it's important to talk about the funding streams. Um, so ICWA was a federal intervention into negative impacts of state systems because family law is generally a state law issue. So the state courts decide it. The feds, Congress and so on, saw these things going wrong that Lauren mentioned and they intervened with ICWA. What's left out of the equation at that point though is that there's also tribal child welfare systems. And those have come under generally, the general model has traditionally been that funding is provided to states who then sub it out to tribes. Um, that was tinkered with under revisions to Title IV-E of the Social Security Act. Um, over, over the course of a, several years, 
where there is some direct funding available to tribes now to run child welfare systems under that, so they bypass the state. And it, they've also tinkered with trying to make it so that the state wouldn't hold the tribes to exactly the same standards as it as it has for itself too. It's, it's really difficult though, because the state has strings that are um, attached to the funding it receives from the feds that it has to pass on to the tribe. So any archaic um, requirements in the federal system have to be passed through. And so there's not as much room as we'd like to see for innovation. And in this case, innovation means adjusting the system to meet the local tribal values and needs, which the tribes are best suited to do. And the states are by definition, not as well suited to do if a tribe's trying to do it on their own. So the whole system needs further work and so on. And we keep you know, people working in the area. We all keep pushing for more and more room for tribes to be able to do what they would like to do and to have sufficient funding and freedom to do that as, as much as possible. Of course, funding is always an issue that hamstrings tribes. So um, when there are when there are strings attached to funding, those effectively create barriers to tribal innovation and they just perpetuate whatever system was already in place. And that's that's been the fight on the tribal side, even as we talk about self-determination and self-governance. Now, self-determination lets tribes take over federal programs that that are you know programs that are provided to them by the feds. Um, in basically the, an identical manner, the tribe just takes over what the feds were doing. Self-governance creates a little bit of freedom and allows tribes to combine programs and to reprogram things and to set up their own their own ways of doing things. So there's some room for, for innovation, but you have to get it out of the state funding channel as well, or else um, free the states up from having to impose requirements on tribes slash um, remove the states from the equation in some way or another where they don't have a say or they're not required to have a say over something. So um, that's a critical move. When you can get that room, then you can start to innovate, basically. Um, but the, you know, the importance of, of the funding streams and the, string, and the strings attached, I mean, that's, that's what makes the system roll. Um, even within the restrictive system, tribes have tried for a long time to innovate as much as they could. They've tried to seek wiggle room and so on, and that's why they've known to push for more, for more room to operate, too. Um, but, you know, the, the system is designed such as really strict channels uh, within which your, your programs must operate because of the requirements of the funding. Um, and that runs into conflict, given that we have 180 degree worldviews at play here, sometimes what the tribe wants and needs to do to more effectively care for its children, it's not able to because the other worldview still informed and shaped the process under which the funding occurs. And so the tribe has to dance the right steps of the dance in order to keep getting the funding flowing. I think that's an excellent point. And I'm wondering, Lauren, if you, or Brett, I guess, is have you, you know, have you seen, are you aware of tribes who have been successful in receiving or adapting? And for those of you out there who aren't familiar, uh, Title IV-E and Title IV-B are funding streams that come out of the Social Security Act. So I just want to mention that. But for those tribes that you were talking about who, um, who have made attempts, I guess, or are successfully adapting uh, to, to try to make the current system more responsive. Can you talk a little bit about what you have seen, Lauren? It's so tricky. Tribes are so resilient. The very, the very existence of tribes, right, is evidence of this resiliency. Every federal Indian policy, even altruistic ones, 
were designed with the idea that it's like this will eventually become irrelevant because tribes will eventually be absorbed into the American polity. And that hasn't happened. And so that's that's counter to federal federal Indian policy. With Title IV-E, there's two ways to access funding. There's the, um, oops, we forgot about tribes. And so tribes can access funding through the state. And then there's the like, oh, okay, we need to fix this. Let's make a direct path for, for tribes to access Title IV-E or direct Title IV-E. Going through the state has always been a fraught design, you know, from the very first like case law in this country was acknowledging the inherent tension between tribes and states. States have always been clumsy when it comes to tribes. At best, they are woefully unaware of tribes. At worst, they're openly hostile to tribes and tribal sovereignty. And so the idea that, that states can administer grants and filter that down to tribes comparable to counties or municipalities was never a good idea. So tribes, even just getting the funding is, is monumental. But then in order to get the funding, you have to assimilate in a, in a large way, or at least show that at least some of your system has assimilated. And that has, in our view, some problematic outcomes because I don't think the child welfare system is worth assimilating to. Now, tribes are resilient. And so I think tribes have been able to, to thread the needle. Um, they're able to do both. And I think you see this in um, a variety of different ways, in the ways that their, their child welfare system is structured internally with the tribe and what their own bureaucracy is, to whom they're accountable, the ways in which um, different tribal agencies are compelled to work together with um, other agencies. I think um, I see really promising results when child welfare is intentionally um, incorporated with the court and in critically with, their, with the tribal health and human services, if they're forced to talk together. I mean, if they're forced to be in the same building, um, I think that's cool. And then I think for Brett and I, where we see really exciting potential is where tribes start to experiment. But I just wanted to acknowledge the immense barriers that tribes face you know, from the federal government, but then also internally, right? Like these assimilation forces can be effective and can inform how we perceive legitimacy and, and accountability. And so innovation, I don't think is, is a universally celebrated um, idea, but on the ground, you know, child welfare practitioners know far better than any of us and, and anyone else about what their families need and so you see resistance in the form of providing um, housing, providing cultural activities, um, providing support services. Um, you see innovation when um, tribes modify the timelines for how you know, families need to measure up and prove that they're doing better as if they need to prove that they deserve to have their kids back. You see really innovative ways in which tribes use the court system to surround the family with a with number of services. And then as um, Brett and I highlight in the article, you know, I think, you know, why are we here? What, what brought this family in need? I think the easy child welfare answer has been, it's like, well, the parents were bad. They did a bad thing and they need to answer for it. 
And I think that tribes are far more adept at recognizing like something happened, something's wrong. What are we going to do about it? This isn't about the parent answering for being a, a bad person. It's about us providing services to this family because these children are in need. And so peacemaking circles is one um, forum where we see that conversation and, and really this like elevated, sophisticated view of child welfare and the role of the family, the children and the community starting to come together. You know, and I, I just want to go back to, because it's my understanding that there are more tribes who are direct, but I still agree and recognize that there are some challenges to that. And there's been a lot of lessons learned in trying to, for example, um, when it was originally written, you know, there was the termination written into, uh, the, of the parental rights written in. And now because tribes have, um, again, like you're saying, adapted, spoke up, become informed, recognize, you know, that terminating is not um, what we are interested in doing. It doesn't honor our tribal values and ways. And therefore, we saw a lot of the customary adoption being written in or the suspension of parental rights. And, you know, and I, I want to say that the system is learning. It's adjusting itself. I've seen states, um, you know, having done this work directly for a tribe for six years, working in state government for 10 years um, in, in a child safety and permanency division, you know, I, I am seeing uh, strides. I am seeing more conversations about um, ways in which we can be honoring and recognizing tribes and their governance. Um, and just knowing that you know, there have been major failings of the system. Um, and they, they, we have not always seen the recognition um, or the wrongdoing. And, you know, just really wanting to um, take a look at and examine. And, I, and that's part of why this conversation is, is so helpful to listen to um, what you guys are offering here, um, what we have seen in, 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 our, in our history. And, and just ways in which we can strengthen and keep moving, like you said, resilient, right? And, and, and trying to uh, adjust um, and advocate for what it is we know. And I know you talked about some of these innovative practices and ways, and, um, and, and I honestly think that is where our answers are. Um, so I, I do appreciate, um, you know, you, sharing that, Lauren, and recognizing that um, we have a long way to go, um, you know, and, you know, we'll, we'll keep getting there. So just, you know, two things that you mentioned, Brett, you know, were just about the languages. And I know, Lauren, you talked about the peacemaking circle that Brett does. And, and you know, of course, we want to invite Brett back um, to just to talk a little bit more of the peacemaking circles. Um, but, you know, before we do that, um, we want our listeners just to be aware that this is where this conversation, this is where we want to go. We want to continue to learn about tribes in Indian country and what we have to offer, but we first need to understand where we came from. Um, and so for those of you that are interested in, in, in staying with us and, and, and carrying this conversation through, 
um, you know, our next episode will focus more on that traditional language and that interconnectedness um, where our guest speaker, uh, James uh, Kegabo Vukulich, uh, he's from Turtle Mountain, which is where I'm from. Um, he's an international speaker and author and a leading voice on that interconnectedness of language and culture. So he will be joining us next. But before we wrap up today's conversation, I just want to make sure Lauren, I know we covered a lot, and as well as you, Brett, is there anything else that you feel is really important for our listeners to hear and know and understand when it comes to this, this the history to, to, you know, where we are going, looking back, so we know where we are going? I think it's it's important to know, uh, and it, this kind of reiterates uh, some of what Lauren mentioned, but I mean, the tribes are shifting away from the model of blaming a parent or both parents and towards the web of responsibility behind something going wrong in a child's life, right? And that's a return to a child, a, a, a native worldview, an indigenous worldview that, that's more like what I described. Um, so what they've done is they've started to wrap around services, wrap around services um, around the child and the family. So their housing does come into effect and so on. They've seen that programs are actually um, able to be brought in. So that's a, that's a recognition of the tribe's own responsibility as a group to, that ch to the children and to that family. And then also the tribal ways of doing things in circles, peacemaking circles, family group decision-making, there's a whole number of names for these different sorts of processes. And which process is right is based on the local community's determination. There's no one, one size fits all about it. But um, those processes will typically include extended families, however family is defined by the local culture. And by opening the circle, you create better enforcement of what's decided and you create more creative opportunities for, for solutions. And the issue becomes one of that web of responsibilities and support's able to be provided in any direction that it might need to be. So um, support that the parents need is there, support that's uh, lateral between other extended family members to help make the world better for the kids. The, the children become the center of the circle and everybody else gathers around and figures out how are we gonna best protect these kids. That's the beauty of this model. Tribal innovations are ongoing and they have been for a long time because tribes have always felt the need to get back to this. Um, and it start, it's excitingly starting to be seen as potential models for the rest of the world too. There's ICWA courts and state courts around the country who are interested in some sort of circle processes to help deal with their ICWA cases, but it's only a step away. I mean, don't all kids des deserve the best standard of care? And so as we create it for tribal children, maybe that's something that's actually shareable in a non-appropriative way with the rest of the world to just make life better for children. And wouldn't that be nice? So I think it's important to keep that in, in perspective as well. We have a chance to basically lead the world from Native American tribes in North America. So let's let's put it into place here. Oh, I hate to not let that be the last word because yes. Um, but I will reinforce that by noting, you know, the, the way that our systems are, including the, the child welfare system and the court system, 
right, are not are not a coincidence. This isn't the inevitable outcome of like a linear evolution towards the best system. No, these are designed with particular values in mind. And so as we innovate and 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 reimagine and further build our native nations, I think being aware of why the systems are the way that they are helps to inform why we want to change, right? Let's be intentional about the systems that we want to build for the future. And um, you know, you made, um, Jackie, the observation around customary adoption. I think that is the first in what Brett is describing as, you know, indigenous legal thought really informing the um, outside community about the potential for reimagining, right? The idea of terminating parental rights for most tribal communities is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. How could you have a tribal a child welfare system that does that? And I think, you know, tribes just just, you know, immediate response to that made other ch child welfare systems go, huh, why do we do that? That is kind of weird. Um, and that's a good thing. And so disruption is I think tribes have always shouldered that burden and because they're good at it. And so I'm really excited for the future of tribal child welfare. Well, and I'm so excited to have had you guys here with us. It has been, you know, such, uh, it's, it's just been so help, heartfelt. Like my spirit, when I first was introduced to, to you, well, even when I read that article, um, I just thought, yes, this needs to be talked about. We need to understand where we are at and where we could go and how do we honor our values? How do we honor our spirits and our intent? You know, how do we continue to honor what our language tells us to, right? Um, so again, a, a, a very chi miigwech for your time today and this conversation. I could listen to you for um, hours and hopefully we'll be able to bring you back. And I just wanna make sure and invite our guests again for our next conversation uh, with, with James uh, Vukovic and um, talking about breaking that language uh, apart and in, in, in our culture and really seeing that as our protection, our guidance. And so we're excited to, to add him, but until next time, you know, Thank you. May you have ease and love and joy in your day. Take care. Way, ah, hey, 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 